Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to episode 166 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, I need to thank some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Janique, Chaz Wazer, Elaine Harold, September Ward, Yvonne, Brittany T, Lisa, Elaine McCann, Alyssa Conway, Elin Elson, Michael Thompson, Jackie Fawkes, Sophie Miller, Jamie, Sarah Rhodes, Kathleen Wortman, Rifat Salam, Diana Wasson, Rachel Daly and Stephanie Lynch. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. Just want to make it very clear that I have a bit of a Phoebe voice this episode. I've done, I've left it as long as I can to record it and my voice is not improving. I just have a bit of a cold so I apologise in advance. And our film review this week, our film review is Last Night in Soho. Last Night in Soho was released in 2021. It has 7.2 out of 10 on IMDb and 76% on Rotten Tomatoes. An aspiring fashion designer is mysteriously able to enter the 1960s, where she encounters a dazzling wannabe singer. However, the glamour is not all it appears to be, and the dreams of the past start to crack and splinter into something far darker. I need to start this review with a little bit of context. I wasn't enamoured with this film and I'm still not entirely sure why but I actually realised today that it might have been something to do with what I did earlier that day. So I went to see a play called Prima Fasci which is a play with the actor Jodie Comer and it is all about sexual assault and it was a very tough watch. It was very emotional and I don't know if having watched that and having watched Last Night in Soho was a good idea to watch them both on the same day because Last Night in Soho deals with a lot of, oh, just a lot of like horrible content about trafficking, about girls being coerced into sex work. Yeah, really, it really was, it was really tough going at times. And I don't know if watching both of them on the same day was just too much for my brain to handle. And that's why I wasn't as enamoured with Last Night in Soho as I thought I would be. But I thought I'd better mention that before I start. So let's get into the likes. This film is visually beautiful. I absolutely loved the way it looked. I loved the cinematography. I loved the soundtrack. I mean, I love the 60s music anyway. And I love 60s style and fashion. And I think the depiction of Soho in the 60s was really interesting because you have this what seems to be like glamorous life of drinking, singing, clubs 
and then there's a really seedy underbelly to it and I think that was portrayed actually really really effectively in the film and I loved how well the flashbacks to the 60s were done so very early on in the film you realize that the main character Ellie has the ability to like maybe see spirits it's kind of alluded to that she sees things uh, but it's sort of accepted that she is actually seeing these things and then she eventually moves to this bedsit and going to sleep every night in this bedsit she has these flashbacks in her dreams of the life of a woman called Sandy in 1960s Soho who st- who lived in the same room that Ellie is living in now and I just thought the flashbacks were done really really beautifully and I loved the bits of the flashbacks where Sandy who's played by Anya Taylor-Joy who I think is an outstanding actor anyway where she's dancing in the club oh I just loved them loved those flashbacks I really liked Ellie's character and I really liked her performance the actor's performance and I liked the link between her and the flashbacks to Sandy so in the modern day you have Ellie who's going off to fashion school to try and make it and she's quite vulnerable she's from the west country she's from a really rural area and then she suddenly moved to london she's getting bullied at fashion school because she is different than all the other girls and then she moves to this bedsit and she's really struggling to fit in i don't really particularly like bullying storylines in films i've said this before i always find them quite difficult to watch because i find that they never quite get it right But in saying that, the naivety of Ellie and Ellie's character was really nicely both like reflected and juxtaposed in Sandy's character. So when she flashed back to the 60s, you see Sandy, who is this like really confident, gregarious character. She is very talented, but also quite naive. And I think it was a really lovely way to kind of show the different ways that naivety can present itself. I thought the concept of the film was very, very clever. It's another one that's a difficult film to talk about without spoiling the entire storyline and, of course, the ending. I thought it painted like a really clear and interesting picture of how easy it was and indeed still is for people to be manipulated and coerced into sex work. However, I don't know if this should have been a horror movie. I just felt like all the horror elements really fell flat and I also felt like the end of the film was really rushed. I don't know if the script or the structure of the end of the film really gave the story justice and gave the characters justice. Like I thought the outcome of the story was clever and I wasn't expecting it and I was like oh I like it okay interesting but I thought the addition of the horror elements actually took away from it. Like, it's not really a scary horror film. And rather bizarrely, I think it might have actually benefited from not having the horror jump scare elements in it. And I'm not entirely sure I'm explaining myself very well with that one. But again, it's one of those ones where I can't explain too much because I don't want to ruin it for people who haven't seen it. So, what am I going to give this film out of five? I think, I think it's a three and a half out of five for me. Which kind of feels a bit harsh, but I also don't think I can give it any more. Great performances by the actors, but it was just lacking in something, and I'm not entirely sure what that something was. So last night in Soho, three and a half stars, but fundamentally I think it is worth a watch. Give it a go if you haven't seen it already, if only for the fashion.
and the dancing. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Which brings us to our story this week. Now, this story has been on my list for a very long time and actually bizarrely it did end up having a link to the film which I didn't really expect. There is a moment in the film where our main character Ellie goes to the police claiming that she has been witness to a crime in her dreams or in these visions. So she's having visions of a crime that she believes has gone unsolved and it actually perfectly linked to our topic this week. Now this topic has been on my list for ages but I've always been like slightly afraid to do it let's just do you know what let's just get into it a couple of weeks ago during a mini episode i confidently asserted that there was a team in scotland yard that was dedicated to tips and information that was offered up by psychics i had read somewhere that there was a branch whose job it was to sift through tips offered up by psychics and see if there was any reason for the tip to be investigated In the editing stage of this episode, I thought to myself, I'd better fact check this and see if it's true. And it was a good thing that I did fact check it because it's definitely not true. And I swiftly removed it from the episode. There is no dedicated psychic branch of Scotland Yard. But in my research, I did find an intriguing little article from the Guardian newspaper that was written by Leo Hickman in June 2011. When the phone rang at the Sheriff's Office in Liberty County, Texas, on Tuesday the 7th of June, the call triggered a story that would captivate America's news networks and cause ripples of interest across the world. But it's not every day that the police get a tip-off about 30 dismembered bodies, including children. After several hours, the police called off the search. There's no crime scene announced Liberty County Judge Craig McNair on live television. Instead, the police's attention was now focused on arresting the psychic who had twice called in with the revelation. Much of the debate since has focused on whether the police should have acted on unsolicited evidence offered by a psychic. Surely they should only act on hard evidence. But the officers involved have said that because there was a possibility of harm to children, they were duty-bound to investigate. The story poses a question that has long hung over the police. Do they ever use psychics to assist them? The routine answer has always been no, 
and there seems to be little evidence that they do. But, as this week's case shows, the police are routinely contacted by psychics offering leads, especially during high-profile cases, and they sometimes act on the information. In 2007, for example, Portuguese police said they were following up on leads offered by local psychics in the hunt for Madeleine McCann, and had two dossiers of apparent visions and sightings of Madeleine. We can't put these messages in the bin, said Chief Inspector Sousa. We must check them all in case it might be from the kidnapper. Similarly, the police received tip-offs from psychics during the hunt for Peter Sutcliffe and Ian Huntley. In 2006, a group called UK Skeptics formally asked every police force if they had ever used a psychic. All the replies were a predictable no, except one. The Metropolitan Police admitted that in one case in 1965, a psychic had, and I quote, played a major part. A 37-year-old haulage operator called Thomas Ginger Marks had mysteriously disappeared, and Freddie Foreman, a gangster who worked for the craze, was acquitted of the murder in 1975. But in 2000, he admitted the killing and that Marx's body had been thrown in the sea. The psychic's involvement is still unclear, but the Met say the case records are stored at the National Archives in Kew. All that we know beyond Foreman's confession is that no body was ever found and the case is still officially unsolved. So while I was totally wrong, there are no official police links with psychics. There are countless stories and anecdotes about police and psychics working side by side in order to solve tricky cases. I knew that I had come across stories like this before, whether I had heard them from other people or read them in books. And one such book was Credible Witness 2, More Paranormal Police Stories by Andy Gilbert. And this story is taken directly from that book and was apparently reported by a police officer based in Hertfordshire. In late 1978, a double murder occurred at a flat above a Chinese restaurant and takeaway in the Hyde, Stevenage, in Hertfordshire. The Hyde is a small neighbourhood precinct, with a pub and shops. The victims were a mother and her daughter who was about eight years old. They had both been savagely stabbed to death. The husband and father was the proprietor of the restaurant. At the time of the murder, he was in the restaurant playing Mahjong, a tile-based game developed in China. As I recall, the murder took place late at night or in the early hours of the morning. I was a detective sergeant at the time, and along with many others, I was called in to set up the incident room at the Stevenage Nick. I was given the role of office manager. The senior investigating officer, sadly no longer with us, was a very likeable man very thorough and meticulous. He was a great man to work for. In the beginning stages of the investigation, several arrests were made, but no connections could be found. There were no real leads to pursue at this time. Although maybe because there was a child involved, there were plenty of calls to the incident room. One such call was from a lady in Bedford, who stated that she had seen this murder in a dream. This, of course, was put to the bottom of the pile and not considered to be of any use, however well intended. After the initial rush of information into the incident room, 
the number of new actions began to slow. And, as I recall, we didn't seem to have much information to take the investigation further. I'd worked with this SIO before, and knew he was very thorough, and would be checking absolutely everything. All phone calls, inquiries, leads and actions would have to be completed to his satisfaction. There, sitting in the bottom of what was now a small pile of actions, was the lady from Bedford. The SIO decided that she had to be seen. Nobody wanted to do it. So I decided that as I could spare some time away from the room, I would go and visit the lady myself. I volunteered a very reluctant DC to come along with me and we set off on our journey. We had a very nice and leisurely drive into Bedfordshire and onto Bedford itself. Along the way we joked about what would await us. I recall mention of black cats in the garden, broomsticks, crystal balls, tea leaves, Ouija boards, seances, table banging and other such nonsense. We were also thinking about what our colleagues would say when we got back. We arrived at the address, a lovely detached house in an upmarket area, no black cats in the garden, just a normal, lovely looking house. The door was answered by the husband, a very nice, middle class, respectable man around 60 years old. We introduced ourselves and he invited us in. His wife was sitting in the lounge and we explained who we were and the purpose of our visit. The lady was about the same age, well-spoken and very polite. She asked if we wanted a cup of tea. Recalling our conversation in the car, my colleague and I looked at each other, thinking of tea leaves and fortune-telling, I suspect. But that's as far as it went. We had the tea and then went on to talk about how the lady could help us with the investigation. The lady then began to explain to us and said, Well, we were in bed asleep and I had this vision. I sat up as I felt something was wrong. This was on the same night as the murders and she gave the time that it occurred. Her husband said, Yeah, that's right, she's always doing it. I asked her to tell me what she saw. The lady explained. Unfortunately, I can never tell at the time where it is happening. It could be anywhere. Anyway, it was dark and I saw a young man. I could tell he was young by the way he was walking. It looked like he had just gotten off a bus as there was a bus stop. I only saw the back of him as he walked by some shops and went down an alley or similar and climbed some stairs. I thought they were unusual stairs and then I realised that there were concrete ones outside a building. He got to the top, turned along a sort of walkway, and went to a door, like a front door. He lifted his right hand, and I thought he was using a key to unlock the door. But no, he reached right up to the top right-hand corner of the frame. I thought he was reaching for a hidden key. But no, all a bit unusual. The door was answered by a small Chinese lady. She said something... And then there was an argument. He pushed her in the door and then to the right into a kitchen area. He then stabbed her and she fell. Then a small child shouted something. The child had appeared at the top of some stairs further in the house. These stairs were not like normal ones. There were only three or four of them, like a little rise. She was screaming and he walked over to her and stabbed her. She fell on the stairs. He then went into a bedroom on the left and searched some drawers, 
which was a three-drawer chest. There was a low bed, like it was made up, not a proper bed. I could see the knife, and it was like a military dagger. He left the house, and I don't know if he was carrying anything. And then the vision ended. I asked her to describe him. I never saw his face, but he was young, around 18 to 20, I guess. He was slim, even thin, about 5 foot 8 to 6 foot. He had long dark hair, black, I think. He was wearing a pinstriped jacket or suit. She had given us all the information that she had. We left Bedford and drove back to Stevenage. We mulled over what we had been told, some of which was unknown to us and some that we knew to be correct. How she knew some details that had not been in any of the newspapers puzzled us. That lady was quite believable. She had spoken calmly and precisely. In our opinion, she wasn't mad or a crank, but very sincere. We were very quiet, no joking in comparison to our journey to Bedford, although we did have a sceptical discussion about the man with the long black hair and a pinstripe suit. Having been situated in the incident room all the time, I had seen some photographs but not actually visited the scene. I decided to stop off there on the way back. It felt strange seeing the small precinct with shops, restaurants and a bus stop on the main road. Then it felt quite eerie climbing the concrete stairs at the rear and above the restaurant, turning and then approaching the door to the flat. Once there, right at the top of the doorframe on the right in the corner, was a doorbell. A most unusual place to put it, and this would only have been known to local visitors, surely. Inside the flat to the right was indeed a small kitchen, and three steps up to the bedrooms. There, in a bedroom to the left, was a low made-up bed and a three-drawer chest of drawers. We returned to the incident room and attended the debrief. We were greeted by lots of sniggering. In his usual calm manner, the SIO asked us for the result of the action. As I spoke about our meeting, references to the long black hair in the pinstripe suit were met by further sniggering from some of the officers who were present. However, by the time I had finished, there was quiet in the room. For those who were present and had visited the scene, they realised that most of what we had been told by the lady in Bedford was indeed correct. The time and date were spot on. The precinct, the bus stop, the alleyway, the concrete steps, the doorbell, the kitchen, the interior stairs, the bed, the drawers, the weapon and the places that the victims fell. I think the location of the doorbell and the interior description clinched it. Except for the suspect wearing a pinstripe suit, her description only further fueled speculation of a local connection. How could anyone possibly know all these details? Perhaps only the offender and the SIO would know them to that degree. There were still some members of the team who considered the visit to be rubbish, but the information was all logged and the investigation continued. One of the actions that the SIO had already raised was to make physical checks on the local buses that would have been running around the same time that the murders were carried out. This proved to be fruitful, as a suspect was arrested riding the bus. He was 19 years old, slim build, 
five foot ten, long black hair, wearing a pinstriped jacket. A search of his home revealed a military dagger. The suspect was reported as being the self-styled Angel of Death. He was eventually charged, convicted of both murders and sentenced to life in prison. I usually don't take stories directly from books, as I like to add my own dramatic flair to them. But in this instance, I wanted to retell the story in his words to ensure that I was true to the source material, which is very important in stories like this. I didn't want anyone to think that I had added bits and pieces in to make the story more engaging. So what is the link between the police and mediums? These anecdotal stories are everywhere. I myself know a psychic medium who claimed to have helped the police in a very similar way. She was plagued with dreams about a murder in another country, a murder in which a husband had killed his wife and hid the murder weapon in a very specific location in their house. These dreams distressed her so much that she ended up contacting the police in England and explaining all of the details of the murder that she kept seeing in her dream. It matched a case that was unsolved and the murder weapon was found in the exact place that she had mentioned, under a floorboard behind a piano in the living room. Allegedly. As we've seen earlier, there are no police forces in the UK who admit to using psychic mediums. At least not actively seeking them out or working alongside them in a symbiotic relationship. But maybe it's more prevalent elsewhere. In a 1996 survey held in Pennsylvania, 16% of the police department surveyed admitted using psychic help in investigations in the past. 78% claimed that they never had and 10% admitted that they had been approached with clairvoyant help but had declined it. A member of the police, when interviewed, stated that psychics are used quite often, although those seeking help may stay quiet about it or may even deny it. According to Forbes magazine, due to law enforcement publicly using psychics to solve cases, the CIA conducted a study to legitimise how viable and valuable using mediums could be. Out of 11 officers at different police agencies interviewed, Eight officers said that using a psychic provided them with otherwise unknown information. Three out of those eight officers found missing bodies through the use of a psychic. When Irene Hughes was four years old, she was led up to the attic of her house by some fairies. In her short life, she had always instinctively known that there were people living in the attic. And one summer day, when she saw a small creature beckon to her to come up the stairs into the attic space, she didn't hesitate. She followed the small winged being and was greeted by a man whom she had never seen before. The man told her that the maid of the house was going to give her some jewellery and that she would soon get a dolly. She was pleased with these strangers telling her of her impending gifts and was even more pleased when the maid called her to her room and gifted her a necklace made of brass beads. And even more exciting was when her neighbour called in and gave her a dolly that she'd grown out of. As an adult, Irene realised this was her first foyer into the world of the psychic predictions and that they were perfectly age-appropriate, as though the universe was showing her her abilities in a way that would not frighten a child. 
showing her disasters or accidents would traumatise her, but telling her of new jewellery and a dolly would make her happy. When she was nine years old, Irene announced to her mother that she was going to live in Chicago and marry a man from Michigan. Her mother laughed and laughed. Sweet child, Chicago is the other side of the world from here and we don't know anyone from Michigan. But sure enough, years later, Irene ended up in Chicago, married to a man from Michigan, and each year she made predictions, and each year more and more people began to take notice. She predicted political victories and natural disasters, she predicted the weather and world events, and then she began to help the police. 1996 marked the first year she helped the police solve a crime. She predicted a man would be found near a large rock in the Calsag Canal dead after having been shot in the back. He would be wearing a white shirt and would be missing a shoe. Sure enough, Lieutenant Jerry Harmon of the Cook County Sheriff's Department would find the man just as Hughes predicted. They would go on to work on eight other cases together, including one where Hughes would give Harmon the exact name of the killer. When aiding in an investigation, Hughes would request a photograph of the victim, sometimes clothing, and use the photographs to meditate and draw conclusions from them. Using this method, she allegedly helped the police on over 2,000 cases over the span of 25 years. And these are only a scant few examples. There are cases upon cases of psychics who allegedly helped the police solve crimes. And clearly there is lots of anecdotal evidence to suggest that the testimony of psychics is being received by the police and in some cases is being investigated. Is it possible that there is a secret world of police detection that is aided by apparent supernatural abilities? Or is it possible that the stories of psychics solving crimes is simply good for business? I have never flip-flopped so much in my opinion of a story in the four years of doing this podcast. And the research for this was full of contradictory statements, ambiguous claims and tons of hearsay. And I still can't quite make up my mind about what I believe. I've got so many thoughts about this topic. And before we begin getting into it, I apologise if it's just a rant. Secondly, there are a million and one links in the description of this episode to like different YouTube videos, to like a stranger, is it straight, not stranger things, strange but true episode about like a British psychic who allegedly helps to solve crimes. There are links to all the different articles that I referenced. Lots of really interesting stuff in the description of this episode if you want to read about different cases. I could have gone on this episode and like linked a million and one different cases of psychics who allegedly helped solve crimes but it would literally just be a list of this person did this, this person did this. And I also want to say as well, before I continue any further, that I am very aware that there are lots of psychics who listen to this podcast, people who are practicing as psychic mediums, people who have visions, people who are able to predict things before they happened. And I want to say that if I say anything disparaging about the actions of the psychics that I've talked about in this story, it is not mean that I'm disparaging of all people who are psychics or who work as psychic mediums. I have had some very profound experiences with psychics, but similarly I've had some very, I would say, problematic and negative experiences with psychics. So I've kind of seen both ends of the spectrum and I'm still a little bit on the fence. 
So this was my first point that I thought about when I was researching and writing this episode was the idea that loose lips sink ships, which was a very famous military wartime slogan about keeping state secrets. If you're gossiping, it'll get back to the wrong people, especially if you're gossiping about military stuff or if you're gossiping about stuff that maybe might be useful for the enemy. Loose lips sink ships. And I did wonder if maybe that is the case in some of these situations. Like we all know the good news travels fast, but let me tell you, bad news travels even faster. And there's definitely going to be people working on police cases, working on investigations, who go home, they're talking to their partner about it, they're talking to their friends about it, they're getting somebody's opinion on it. That person then goes on to tell somebody else, like, is it impossible that somebody a couple of towns over would know the intimate details of a case? I don't think it's impossible. I really don't. It is also public record that in the case of Fred and Rose West, who were horrific murderers in the UK in the 19. 60s, 70s, and I think their case was in the 70s and 80s. Um, There had to be laws brought in in order to change the way that newspapers were reporting on live cases. The reason being that information from the cases was being leaked to the press that almost caused the detriment of the case in its entirety. So we do know that these cases were being discussed outside of the official offices, if that makes sense. And I think the humans are fallible. Of course, they are going to be discussing these cases. So I think in some cases, it is possible that people just have information that maybe they shouldn't have. And does that then make them feel powerful? And they don't want to say how they have the information. So they say, oh, I got it in a vision or I got it in a dream. So I'm speaking directly about the first story from the 1970s in England, where the woman from Bedford had the dream of the mother and her child being stabbed. It is quite unusual to hear these stories about mediums intervening in police investigations from a police officer themselves. Usually, we hear these stories from psychics, or we hear these stories about psychics from the local community. So hearing it from a police officer was a really interesting perspective. Now, the problem with this story is that I couldn't find any evidence that these murders actually took place. I couldn't find any evidence that this woman and her daughter were stabbed above a Chinese restaurant in this little town in England in the 1970s. Now look, I am perfectly willing to admit that I spent a couple of hours looking, couldn't find the stories, but I could have absolutely been looking in the wrong place. And it's also very possible the details of the story have been changed to like protect the police officer involved and to protect the identities of the victim the victims rather or maybe the story just never happened and I can't decide which it is because I don't like to think that these stories are made up I do think sometimes people misremember things or they might exaggerate a little bit for effect but I would like to think that if a story is included in a book there is at least some evidence that the author has that the story is factual or the story is at least based in fact I just if other if other people can find evidence of these murders, do let me know. I'm very willing to be proven wrong on that part of the story. What else was interesting about that story was that it didn't seem like the woman was making her living from being a psychic. It seemed like from reading between the lines in the story that this was just something that she lived with. 
having these dreams or visions on a regular basis was just something that she lived with. Because I do wonder with a lot of these stories, like, is it possible that these psychics use these anecdotal stories like this to help legitimise their practice? So it's essentially just good advertising. But in this case, it doesn't seem to be that that's the situation for this woman. She isn't the main character in this story. She is a character within somebody else's story. And that's why I think that story interested me so much. If it is rooted in reality, then it is very different from other stories of psychic mediums aiding the police. Because as I was going through different stories of different psychic mediums who've allegedly helped the police, when I would read particular cases, so for example, I read an article about a world-famous medium who allegedly helps the police on their cases, but when I looked at the cases themselves, it more so looked as though this medium was hired by the families involved in the case and then subsequently worked parallel to the police. But the interviews would make it sound like they had been drafted in by the police. And there was also lots of really interesting language in the article. So one part of an article said they rang, the psychic rang and offered information to the police, which essentially led to a murderer's arrest. And essentially is a really interesting word to use there because you have to question whether or not the police confirmed with the psychic that the information that they gave them led to an arrest or if the psychic assumed that the information that they gave to the police led to an arrest after the arrest had happened. Which is why that initial story was so interesting because it came from the perspective of the police officer itself. The police officer has nothing to gain from advertising the dream, the vision of this woman. And the woman has nothing to gain from it either because in the story she's not named. She's just a woman from Bedford who had a dream and this dream was really accurate allegedly to this murder that happened. And then it got me to thinking, right? What happens if the information that you give is accurate? Because if I was a police officer, my first thought would be we have to investigate this psychic as a potential suspect, especially if they had information about a crime scene or details about a crime that weren't immediately made public. Of course you'd have to question it. So then I was thinking to myself, surely there are cases where a psychic has been arrested. And there was a really good example of exactly that on an article on Listverse, which was like 10 psychics who helped the police to find missing persons. Not everyone's psychic visions bode well with the police department as Etta Louise Smith discovered when her vision led her to the body of Melanie Uribe, a 31-year-old nurse who was reported missing after failing to show up for work. Overcome by a very strong psychic vision after watching a news report about Uribe, Smith took it upon herself to drive up Lopez Canyon in Los Angeles and search for the body. After some time, she discovered the corpse, nude except for her white nurse's shoes, face down behind some brush. An approaching police car was flagged down and Smith left the scene, only to be confronted by detectives at her home later that evening. 
After hours of questioning, the detectives did not believe her story of having a psychic vision that led her to the body and they arrested her on suspicion of murder. Smith would spend four days in jail before she was eventually released and the real killer was apprehended. Claiming defamation of character, Smith sued the Los Angeles Police Department and won a settlement for her wrongful arrest and the distress it caused her. And I found that so fascinating. I mean, it must happen more regularly than people think. And obviously, I'm not somebody with any psychic abilities, but I can only presume that there are people out there who have visions, dreams, predictions, etc., etc., who have to keep all those things to themselves out of fear of what the repercussions would be. Because how do you explain to somebody that you just know something bad is going to happen or you just know that that's what happened to this person? How would anybody explain that? And even if you had an entire police department that all 100% believed your statement about being a psychic and this is how you found the body or this is how you knew that something was going to happen, legally, that does not count in a court of law. So while I was completely wrong in my assertion that there was an entire branch dedicated to psychic tips, like a psychic hotline in Scotland Yard, like some sort of British X-Files, I mean, I said it so confidently on the podcast, I really should have left it in just to let myself be roasted. But I'm so glad that I looked it up in the edit and went, oh, take that out. That's embarrassing. So while it doesn't exist, I just wonder how much of these psychic tips, etc. that the police force actually get. I'd love to know how many phone calls they get, particularly like with high profile cases And how many of those they follow up, especially if they're like struggling to find information on a case or they're struggling to find a lead. Do they go, all right, lads, fuck it. You know, that psychic that rang up. Let's look into it. The whole concept of it really fascinates me because I genuinely think it must be something the police force have to deal with. Whether or not they believe that these psychic visions or whatever are real or whether they believe they're just mad people ringing up or whatever it is, like they must have to deal with it quite regularly. And how much of it do you take seriously and how much of it do you completely dismiss? And I need to uh, make a little note about Irene Hughes. So Irene Hughes lived until she was in her 90s. I think she died in like 2012 and she was a really famous psychic in Chicago She um, made loads and loads of predictions about different things. And like I said in the story, she maintained herself that she helped the police on like 2000 different cases. I think it's really important to remember that helping the police can be a loose term. Like I do believe that some of these psychics who help the police like literally ring up and say, I'm a psychic and this is what I've seen. And that's then they roll with that as being the idea of helping the police. But Irene Hughes made loads and loads of different predictions And loads of them were completely wrong, like categorically wrong. And I put a link in the description to some of the predictions that she has made if you want to actually have a look for yourself and see some of the predictions that she has made. But it seems that the predictions, the swathes of predictions that she made that were wrong have been forgotten in favour of the ones that she got right. So is it possible that if you're making predictions like loads of them, surely you're bound to get it right sometime. And I sound like I'm being hyper cynical and hypercritical. And I'm not trying to be, I'm just trying to work it out in my brain how this works logically. Because we always see the law, the legal system as being this logical, 
factual, hard evidence-based place. Of course it is. But even people like Irene Hughes, who made loads of wrong predictions, also made some really specific predictions about crimes. And there are tons of other psychics that are recorded, the links are all in the description, that have made really specific references to where a body might be found, having had no connection to the murder victim or the murderer. There are psychics who have predicted where a body would be found in two years' time before the murder had even took place that have been eerily accurate. So that's, they're the ones that make me go, huh, how did you do that? Or are we simply retroactively saying that these people made these predictions? Like we're making these predictions fit to what then happened in the future rather than the predictions initially fitting what was going to happen. I'm like thinking myself around in circles with this. So I'm going to pause there and I'm going to leave you with something really interesting. So I was looking and researching for this story and I found this really interesting side note from the website Mental Floss. And it was just a whole list of things all about Scotland Yard, which were like interesting facts. There are people that work in Scotland Yard called super recognisers. So they might not have a team for the supernatural, But listen to this, right? With surveillance cameras dotting London, facial recognition for identifying criminal suspects is in high demand. But no software can outperform Scotland Yard's team of super recognisers who are recruited for their ability to match a face to a name based on their own memory. These officers are hired by administering a facial recognition test first implemented by Harvard in 2009. Those in the top percentile have an uncanny ability to retain facial feature details and are often dispatched to cull out known criminals like pickpockets at public gatherings. One such specialist, Constable Gary Collins, identified 180 people out of 4,000 while examining footage. Software was able to identify exactly one. I had no idea that was a thing. I always presumed that stuff would be more accurately done by software. How amazing is that? What a skill to have. I definitely don't have that skill. I don't remember anybody. I never remember people's names. I never remember people's faces. So my lifelong dream of being a super recognizer will never be achieved. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Let me know what you think. Do you think the police use mediums more than they let on? Do you think the police don't use mediums as much as we think? And do you think there's a legitimacy in using mediums to support police work? Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you want to find out more about Real Life Ghost Stories, you can do so by checking out reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. You can also sign up to Patreon if you are desperate for extra content. It is patreon.com forward slash Stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content, as well as every main and mini episode completely ad-free. And on that note, I shall see you next time. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, 
lemon and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. 